0: This podcast is brought to you by Schweitzer Church. If you want to learn more about us, please visit any of the links in the description. And now, please enjoy the message.
1: Um, if we've not met before, my name is Spencer. I'm the pastor. And today we are in for a treat. Um, we have a special guest with us, um, Bishop Todd Hunter. Bishop Hunter is a, a bishop in the Anglican Church of North America of a diocese called the Church for the Sake of Others. It's a specially church focused on church planting and evangelizing and reaching people who are not um, yet reached. And so uh, Bishop Hunter will be bringing us the good word today. And this evening at 6 p.m., we've invited Bishop Hunter to share with us a teaching on, um, how the Christian witness, what the Christian witness looks like in our postmodern culture. So we think about some of the challenges we face as Christians and we think about the, the culture of, um, where truth is, is somewhat arbitrary and subjective. And yet we have these claims that, that there is truth, that the truth is found in Christ. And so how do we, live and, and share the good news within this culture that we live in. Um, we think about some of the challenges we face, with culture wars, and, and some of the political processes that come into that. And so Bishop Hunter will be leading us through a teaching. I encourage you to participate in that. That'll be tonight at 6 p.m. in the Student Center, which is our building just um, west of here. The Chiefs play at 720. I'm sure you have a DVR, and you will um, want to, to be a part of that, to experience that that teaching as we think more deeply about how it is we share um, the good news with others Today is week two in Advent, and so we are continuing our series on the glory of God that we find expressed to us in the first few verses of the Gospel of John. And so last week we read the first five verses of John that go like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We talked about the greatness of Jesus revealed in creation, revealed through the Word of God. And today, we're going to pick up in the very next verse, and here's how it goes. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Let's welcome Bishop Hunter to come and share with us this morning.
0: Thank you very much. It is honestly my delight to be here. I know guest speakers are supposed to say that. But this is a a fun, full circle moment for me. I grew up in First United Methodist Church in Santa Ana, California. That's Southern California, if you don't know. Uh, But I was unfortunately a rebellious kid, both morally and spiritually. And so I didn't come to faith until I was 19, a sophomore in college. When, if you did, you happen to see the movie that was out recently called The Jesus Movement, if any of you saw that? So, I'm a convert of the Southern California Jesus Movement. You may have heard of churches called Calvary Chapels. So, when I was converted, I felt this strong impulse from God to go back to the liberal United Methodist church that I grew up in and see if I could serve there. So, my very first job in ministry as a 19 year old, I was a Methodist youth pastor. So I was sitting there thinking this morning, I can't believe 47 years have gone by, and uh, here I am kind of full circle again, so it's super great to be with you. Well, this morning, our passage offers us a really fresh and important perspective on how the glory of God works, meaning how it's made manifest, and we're going to get into that. But these perspectives, especially fresh perspectives, I think are super important, And I love to illustrate the importance of this by those silly jokes. Have you ever heard where you've got like four guys in an airplane, there's only three parachutes, the airplane's crashing? Have you heard those dopey stories? Okay, I'm going to give you one, but with a warning. The only thing worse than dad jokes are bishop jokes. So here we go. (laughs) So you know how it goes. There's four guys in an airplane, and there's only three parachutes. You know, the airplane, for some reason, is starting to crash. Well, here's the four guys. There was a young pilot who's about 35 years old, and he had three or four kids at home. There was a a middle-aged guy who I don't remember exactly what he did, but he was reputed to be like the smartest guy in the world. He did something where he like networked all the world's banks together or something. And then there was this old retired minister and a young boy about 12. Those are the four. Plane starts crashing. The young pilot says, hey, if I die, my wife will kill me. Super important that I live. I got little kids at home. So he grabs one of the parachutes and he jumps. Smartest guy in the world says, hey, look, I'm the smartest guy in the world. The whole banking system of the world, you know, depends on me. So he grabs one of the parachutes and he jumps. Well, that just leaves the old reverend and the young boy. And the old reverend looks at the young boy and says, you know, son, I've lived a really long, good life. I really think I've done everything God gave me to do. You take that last parachute and jump. And the young boy looks at him and says, ah, relax, reverend. Smartest guy in the world just jumped out with my backpack." Thank you very much. I'll be here till tonight. Um. So what that little story illustrates, that silly little story, is that often we deeply, intuitively believe things to be true. We believe it to be the way things actually are. And it's not. And that's okay. It doesn't mean we're bad people. It doesn't mean we're stupid. But it does bring to light Christian things like conversion and repentance and, and change and discipleship and growing and having our perspectives always challenged and always renewed. Well, what our passage does today, I think, to give us a new perspective about the glory of God is that on the one hand, the glory of God has to do solely to do with his person. Right, his qualities of being. So you might think of words like omniscience, you know, om, all knowing, or omnipotence, all power. Those sorts of things they don't have anything to do with us. They are of God's being. But the way God's glory is manifest, that is to say the way it's seen, the way that it is experienced by others, is a divine human partnership. So for instance, if you think of this, just the divine part, you might think of Psalm 19. That says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And the day after day, they pour forth God's speech. That's nothing to do with us. This is God just revealing himself in his creation. Or you might think of Romans 1. This is kind of an intense passage where Paul talks about the wrath of God that's being revealed from heaven against godlessness and wickedness and people who are suppressing the truth. And Paul says that happens like this that God is understood from what has been made. So again, this is just God's expression of his own glory and things that don't have anything to do with us as people. But the partnership part comes in when you think of things like Psalm 8, where the psalmist asks this question, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? And then he answers his own rhetorical question saying, you made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory, and honor. And you made them to be your cooperative friends, to rule over the works of your hands. Or thinking really clearly about the human divine partnership, we might think of Matthew 5. I love the way uh, Eugene Peterson gets this in the message. Is it OK to talk about a Presbyterian in a Methodist church? <laughs> All right, OK, good. I just want to make sure I'm OK here. So the way Peterson gets this in the message is you're the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So this is what this passage that holds before us John the Baptist and Jesus is trying to say to us, that there's a pattern at work here where you have divine intention, where God is up to something. He's, he's doing something. And so, for instance, when you see God in, the, in Genesis saying, let there be light, God's not being a show-off. And he's not like trying out his new bike, like, let there be light. Oh, I hope that works. You know, like, I've never done this before. I'm going to say this. Like, I hope it works. No, he's not showing off. He's not doing anything like that. What's happening is that we're seeing something of how he wants to show his glory. His divine ownership of all things, the control of his purpose and ultimate goals amongst all that's been created, and that human partners is the light of God shining through us as what happened with John. So let's take a couple minutes here and just look closely at our text. If you got phone, Bible, iPad, whatever you got, uh, let's look at these verses that Spencer read to us. So the text says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, that, just that little word sentness gets at, or sent, gets at the sentness, which is core to a partnership between God and his people. So Paul said it this way in Ephesians 2, we're God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to good, do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So again, you, you see this human-divine partnership that's really all through the scriptures. Next, the text says, John came as a witness to testify concerning the light of Jesus, this light that's shining in the darkness. Well, like sent, the word witness calls attention to this partnership. To witness to something means here to point to it through deeds and word, to show people the way to the light. So that, those are really core words. This divine partnership is so that, through God, all might believe. That is to say that they would come to place their confidence in God, to come to rely on him and trust him. When we see the word believe in the Bible, it normally has very little to do with mental processes or cognition. And one of the chief ways we know this is if you think of the Sermon on the Mount, arguably Jesus' greatest teaching, you get to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount at the end of chapter 7, and Jesus tells this little parable that says, if you hear these words of mine, all these things I've just taught, but you don't come to place your confidence in them, you don't come to rely on them and trust them as the way that things actually are, like if turn the other cheek seems really stupid to you, Or not cultivating lust in your heart feels stupid to you? Or not cultivating hate so that you don't murder? Don't cultivate lust so you don't commit adultery? Like if that stuff really doesn't resonate with you and you just sort of hear it as Jesus spouting kind of religious aphorisms, but you don't put them into practice, well, then you're going to live a life, a certain sort of life, in order to be like a life built on the sand. But Jesus said, if you hear these words of mine and you trust them, See, this goes way beyond belief. Like, you can believe this is wood. It's a whole other thing to place your confidence in it, to stand on it. So Jesus is saying, do you you really rely on what I'm saying? Do you really place your confidence in it? That's what belief is all about. And what this passage is telling us is that when we do that, it shines God's light. It brings glory to him. And so underscoring this pattern, the text says that John himself was not the light. He came only, as we've been saying, to witness to this light. That this light, as uniquely powerful as it is, right? What could be more unique than God himself? That shining in the world, as unique as it is, it still requires and has testimony alongside it. There's this kind of show and tell that we engage in, that through us and our lives, People are able to see God's light. What the passage calls, if you see here next, the true light. The light that gives light to everyone, Jesus, was coming into the world. Now, we'll say more about this tonight, but I will say this you will not follow Jesus if you don't think he's smart. You wouldn't take violin lessons from somebody who you didn't think knew the violin. You wouldn't take French from somebody who you thought didn't know a word of French. And we will not follow Jesus unless we believe he is the true light. Again, that's a very different thing than saying, I believe the Bible is the word of God. That's even a very different thing than saying, I believe in the virgin birth. That's a different thing even than saying, I believe in the resurrection. We can give mental assent to all that without actually placing our confidence in the person of Jesus, who is the glory of God on the earth that comes in and through his people. Those are very, very different things. And what the passage is saying is that those who actually place their confidence in Jesus, who act as if what he taught was true, that there is a way that things are outside of our perceptions about them. There's a way that things are, this God and God his glory. That's the way things are. And that exists independent of what we think or feel about it, how we view it. Again, we'll talk more about this tonight. But the passage is saying is that when we get this right, truth becomes this like embodied social reality. And people can see it. But the text says next, this has always been a challenge. It is now and always has been. That even when God's own glory in His Son came, they did not receive Him. Well, why? Because the Jews that Jesus came to were stubborn. They were stubbornly committed to previously existing worldviews and perspectives. So the Herodians had their own perspective. So did the Qumran sect. So did the Zealots. So did the Pharisees and Sadducees and other teachers of the law. They all were stubbornly committed to points of view and worldviews. So when Jesus came, he notices that a lot of people don't have ears to hear. Remember that Jesus phrase, ears to hear? Well, that phrase doesn't mean, "Um, excuse me, ma'am, could you move your hair so I can see if you have a flap of flesh on the side of your head? You think that's what Jesus wondered? Do people have flesh on the side of their head? No, Jesus is getting at something you might call instrumental, Jesus knew that most people did not have ears to hear him. Hear the instrumentality in that? They didn't have ears to hear him. They had ears to filter and manage him according to their Herodian perspective, or their zealot perspective, or their Democratic, or Republican, or independent perspective. Jesus knew that virtually everybody was trying to fit him into what they were already committed to. They did not receive him. But yet, the passage said, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in him, as I've said, placed their confidence in him and his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So to receive Jesus means something like to welcome him into our life. This is an active thing. It's not passive. It means not just to believe in him, but this is a major move of Christian discipleship. Ready, can I have all of your attention just for one second? This is a major move in Christian discipleship. To move from believing in him to believing him. That he's the greatest, the best, stunningly brilliant. Has the best information possible on what it means to be human in the image of God. This is why crowds heard him teach and said, we've never heard anybody teach like this. Where did he get his authority? He was stunning in his greatness. Or when he did deeds of power, crowds would say, where does he get this power? We've never seen anybody act like this. And what that was always meant to do was to help us to believe him, as I've said, to place our confidence in him, to act as if we believe Jesus is the truth. So God in his person is always the initiator, the grace giver, the one who calls and guides. And this work of God is what calls us and forms us into this divine human partnership that I've been describing. Now, we might think, well, aren't we all children of God? And in some sense, yes. We're all children of God by creation. We're all children of God in that we live in his home that he created. But that's far from what even we would expect from our own children, right? Like, we don't want our children to think, well, yeah, you know, biological things came together and then I live in this family system. Right? We expect something very different than that from our children. And this is why the importance of conscious personal choices has always been an aspect of Christian spirituality. This is why the text says, but whoever did want him, whoever believed he was, who he said he claimed to be, and who would do what he said, he made to be their true selves, their child of God selves. And this is what I want you to consider this morning as you all work this Advent with the glory of God and us as human beings participating with Him. What if the hardest part of Christian discipleship is not things like how did the virgin birth work? Or how does an ancient text have any authoritative meaning today? Or how did the resurrection work? What if the hardest part of following Jesus is to want to? To those who wanted Him, God gave the ability to be children of God who would carry His glory. It's those who didn't want Him. The text doesn't say those who struggled philosophically or those who didn't get to go to seminary or those who had a hard time reading Greek or Hebrew. It's got nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with wanting. This is why Jesus told the parable of the pearl of great price and the treasure buried in the field. Those are parables that are meant to make human beings be decisive. They're meant to ask the question, what do you want? Is the kingdom of God to you like a treasure buried in the field, such that if you were a real estate holder, would you leverage everything you had to get the kingdom? See, that's not about, can you please define for me, basileia, which is the Greek term for kingdom. That's about what do you want? Would you take everything you had and leverage it to get life in the kingdom of God as God planned it for human beings? If you were a pearl merchant, And you had a warehouse full of pearls and you saw this pearl of the greatest value the greatest price would you sell everything you had would you rearrange the affairs of your life to find your life in the kingdom of god in the glory of god being someone who reflects that glory so you know all of our words are personal you know all all words human words are intimate and we speak them you know from a breath that comes from inside us and you know works with our vocal cords but they're powerful they actually move matter like i could say hey spencer hand me that mic and my words would move matter spencer would get up move his frame walk up these stairs and hand me the mic or honey i forgot the kitchen light would you turn it off please or son would you take out the trash these personal words make a difference And this is what Jesus was meant to be, this Word of God who is deeply personal. He's not a concept. This is not about divinity. This is not about some sort of theological pop quiz. This is the personal work of God come to the earth to share His glory, to show His glory, and to have His glory manifest through us who have this relationship with Him. God's Word in Jesus is meant to change reality. It's meant to change us and to form us in this unique way. So I thought, OK, when I when I thought about this over the years, what, how do I think this really works that we have this divine human partnership that manifests the glory of God? And I think of four simple things and we're done. In my imagination, I think of myself as the cooperative friend of Jesus. Number two, seeking to live a life of constant creative goodness through the power of the Holy Spirit, for the sake of others. You got a great example. Think Flourish. It's a classic example of being the cooperative friends of God, full of creative goodness, definitely aimed at others, and empowered by the Spirit. And when people see that light, they ask for a hug. When they see the glory of God manifest to it through us, they say, yeah, yes. I still might not understand who wrote Hebrews, but I want that God that you have a relationship with and that is being manifest through you. Father, this morning we ask that you would make this true of us, that your glory would shine in us and through us for the sake of the least, the lost, The last left out marginalized and that all of this would bring glory to your name amen thank you for listening to a schweitzer podcast we hope you found this message to be helpful and encouraging if you enjoyed this experience please remember to share us with your friends and neighbors thanks again for stopping by and remember you are loved